Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. Is America and the world going to hell in a handbasket? This seems to be the consensus among many conservatives today, and even evangelical Christians, that we just need to hold tight for a while while sin consumes the world, knowing that one day at the end of history, Jesus Christ will return to make everything better. But is that really the plan that Jesus has for his church? Did Jesus tell us to go make disciples of the nations, teaching them to observe all that he commanded us, all the while expecting us to fail? Well, that's what we're going to talk about on this week's Liberty Cafe. We're going to speak with Pastor Rich Lusk about an alternative, biblically grounded vision that sees Christ and his church victorious throughout history as our Lord laughs derisively at the rebellious nations and people of this world who believed they could defeat him. Hi, this is Bill Peacock, and welcome to the Liberty Cafe. I'm blessed to have you here with me today, and I'm also blessed to be uh, sponsored, Liberty Cafe being sponsored by Texas Scorecard. It's a great group of uh, men and women that are fighting for liberty here in Texas, and from a biblical worldview perspective, and I encourage everybody to go over to TexasScoreCard.com and see what you can do to join in the fight for liberty with them. Well, our guest today is Rich Lusk, and he was in town, I guess, late last fall for a conference uh, put on by uh, King's Cross Church down in Buda. And that same weekend, uh, my family and I were just blessed to hear him preach at King's Cross it was really a message of joy and hope for the future of Christ's church. Now, this wasn't really new to me and my family because we'd first heard Rich's teaching on this topic and, and other things back in the late 1990s when we both attended a church that uh, Rich was, where Rich was a resident scholar and the director of Christian education, if I, if I got those titles approximately right. And, um, and, and that just really opened my eyes to this to the whole counsel of God, because before that, I had mostly just heard that Christ was going to save me while the whole world around me was falling apart. So it was really refreshing uh, to hear Rich, or renewing really, to hear Rich's teaches, teaching back then, and then refreshing to hear it just last fall, because I, I just frankly don't get enough of that kind of preaching and teaching today uh, here in Austin. So just to introduce him just a little bit, Rich is the pastor of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama, which is part of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, the CREC. Rich lives there with his wife, Jenny. They have four children who I think are uh, probably, I think, all grown up, if not just about grown up. And Rich is the author of uh, the book, Pado Faith, a Primer on the Mystery of Infant Salvation and a handbook for covenant parents, along with articles and papers and essays, too many to count. Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, Rich. Great to be with you, Bill. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm glad to be here, and um, so I'm glad you're here. And so this, your sermon I mentioned was titled, How Christ Builds His Church, and you based your sermon on Matthew 16, 13 to 20. So before we start talking about the, the ideas in the sermon that you brought out from the Bible, let's listen, take a break here and listen to the passage as read from the ESV translation. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, 
others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. All right, Rich, in your sermon, you focus on three key words, rock, keys, and gates. So I I want you to walk us through each of those words and and what they mean can teach us today, uh, along with that passage. But before we get to that, would you give us just a bit of background on the passage, particularly its uh, geographic location in Caesarea Philippi? Yeah, you know, uh, Bill, you mentioned in the intro there that uh, this this is a passage that should fill the church with hope. I would say it should fill the church with courage and with confidence, and those are things that are that are sorely lacking in the church today. So, I this is I think a really pivotal pa- passage <clears throat> in uh, Matthew's gospel. Uh, I think it's a really pivotal passage for us today in terms of understanding the mission of the church and the success that Jesus has promised to his church. Uh, We may or may not be uh, optimistic about America. We may or may not be optimistic about our states or local governments, what have you. But uh, Jesus does not allow us to be pessimists about the church. We have to be optimists, at least in the long run, uh, about the church. And this passage is is a really good um, I, I think it shows us that very, very clearly. Uh, it's a good explanation of what that means for Christians to live with hope and courage and confidence. So it's very interesting. Jesus uh, comes into the region of Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. And when you have details like this, like say geographic details in the scripture, uh, they're, they're never included in the inspired text uh, just to provide some color or, uh, or, or anything of that nature. Certainly, historical events are being recorded, but historians are always selective. And so what did the Holy Spirit lead Matthew to select to include in this? Well, part of it is the geographic reference here. Caesarea Philippi uh, was a a region that uh, obviously from the name, it's got Caesar in the name, so it's got a a pagan connection. And then Philippi, that's actually got a a Jewish uh, connection. But what's most interesting, I think, is the fact that this region uh, was known quite literally as the gate of hell uh, to uh, to many Jewish people because it's a place where uh, there were um, there were uh, shrines set up to pagan gods. It was a place where paganism was heavily concentrated. Uh, and of course, all the worst elements, all the vices that would come with the worship of pagan gods were very much present there. Uh, there were some outcroppings of rock which is interesting to consider in this passage, since Jesus also uses the the rock language, the rock metaphor. There were some outcroppings of rock that had, uh, that had uh, basically, you could say, demonic icons 
uh, drawn or carved into the rock. So when Jesus brings his disciples out there and then starts talking about a rock and gates of hell and uh, the gates of, ha- of hell or Hades not prevailing against his church, uh, obviously all of that is tied very much to the location where they are. Now, I don't think you'd have to know all of that geographic information to get a lot out of this passage, but I do think understanding the geographic location really helps uh, enrich our understanding of what's going on in this passage as Jesus takes his disciples out there. And when he gets out there, he asks them what is really the ultimate question, who do you say that I am? In fact, it's interesting. This is Matthew 16, 13. He actually says to them first, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? So he wants to know what do the crowds say about about me. And you might even think, well, has Jesus already given away the answer by referring to himself as son of man in the question? Is this one of those questions where the answer is built in to the question? And to some degree, that's true. Um, Son of man is, is perhaps Jesus' favorite title, or at least numerically, it's the most common title Jesus gives to himself in the Gospels. And it's very interesting. Son of man actually goes back to uh, Daniel and Daniel's prophecy, uh, goes back to the book of Ezekiel, uh, where Ezekiel is called son of man again and again. And while it doesn't literally mean son of Adam, that's really the basic idea here is that Jesus is a new Adam or the last Adam. That's what it means for him to identify himself as the son of man. So Daniel had a vision in Daniel chapter seven of one like the son of man uh, coming and uh, ascending to the ancient of days, ascending to the throne of God, and then subduing various beasts. Think about the first Adam who has dominion over the beasts of the earth. Well, this son of man, this son of Adam, this new Adam, this last Adam figure will have dominion over beasts as well. Only in Daniel's vision, it's very obvious that the beasts represent various Gentile nations and empires. So for Jesus to identify himself as the son of man is to say, I am the one that Daniel saw who will ascend to the ancient of days, who will take possession of the kingdom and who will subdue the Gentile nations, the Gentile, the beastly nations of the Gentiles. So already when Jesus asks the question in this particular way, he's hinting at which way this passage is going to go, that reasons for hope, reasons for optimism. The son of man that Daniel saw subduing the kingdoms of the world is here. But Jesus is obviously looking for something more than that. He's looking for an answer that goes beyond even son of man, as glorious as that title is. He's looking for something that goes beyond that. And that's what he's going to get into uh, with his disciples next. Okay, well, good. Yeah, I I think that's great. As as you pointed out in the sermon that to explain the, the the hopeful future of the church, he, he brings his disciples to the gates of hell right there, right? And, which is a picture of where the church is going to be in the future. And I, and I, and I know you're going to get to that in just a little bit, talking about the gates, because that's where you, I think you spent most of your sermon. But before we get to the gates, could you just walk us through the, the importance of uh, rock and keys, what, what those kind of help us learn from this passage? Yeah, sure. So so picking up in verse 14, after Jesus says, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Various answers are given. Uh, some are connecting Jesus with John the Baptist, who, of course, has been executed. He's been beheaded at this point. So is Jesus somehow John raised from the dead or some connect him with Elijah or Jer- Jeremiah or other ancient prophets? Because obviously Jesus is teaching like these ancient prophets. He's using their language. He's acting like ancient prophets did. He's uh, his message. Uh, resonates and sounds very similar to uh, to the messages to the messages that the ancient prophets had 
uh, had preached. And of course, all of those figures are in some way patterns of Jesus. You can look at John the Baptist and Jesus and find all kinds of similarities where the ministry of Elijah, you could say, is very much typological of what Jesus would come and do, or Jeremiah, certainly all kinds of connections between Jesus and Jeremiah. But that's not a satisfactory answer. And so Jesus uh, says, uh, he asked the question to, to his disciples directly. He says, who do you say that I am? And then Simon answers and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So not just son of man, but son of God. Now, did Peter fully understand this? Is he professing a full uh, Christology, a full theology of the incarnation? Probably not at this point. Peter would come to that full understanding later. But he does understand that there's more to Jesus than just mere humanity. Jesus is the Christ. That means he's the promised Messiah, uh, the promised King. And he's also the son of the living God. Uh, of course, uh, kings in ancient Israel and Judah uh, were sometimes referred to as the son of God. Um, but uh, obviously, Peter is confessing that Jesus is the son of the living God in a special way or unique way. And Jesus then affirms him in this answer. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That means Simon, son of Jonah, uh, which is that we could explore connections between Simon and, and Jonah. Uh, that'd also be an interesting way to go. But let, let's focus. You had asked about the rocks. Let's focus on that. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus here uh, basically says to Peter, the reason you're able to give the right answer to my question is not because you're so smart, Peter, but because the Father has opened your eyes to see the truth of who I am. This has been revealed to you. And so then in verse 18, very famous verse, and one that was very uh, crucial in debates uh, in, the, in the Reformation era between the Reformers and the Roman Catholic Church, verse 18, Jesus says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, on this Petra, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So Jesus makes a, a, a play off of Peter's name. Uh, he's been identified in the immediately preceding verses, Simon. Now Jesus gives him this name, Peter. Blessed are you, Simon. I, I'm sorry. Um, he says, I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, on this Petra, I will build my church. Now, one of the debates that's taken place here is, is Jesus saying he's going to build his church on Peter, and so Peter is foundational, or is it Peter's confession? That's the way some people have taken it. Or the, what, what I would say is it's Peter as the confessing apostle. But what's interesting is the church does not just have a Petrine foundation. If you go look at other places in the New Testament, like Ephesians 2.20 or Revelation 21 and 22, where we have this vision of the church as the New Jerusalem and the, and the bride of Christ, all of that, uh, you will see that actually the foundation of the church is not just Peter, and it's not even just Peter with Jesus as the chief cornerstone, but it's actually the whole uh, band of apostles. It's all 12 apostles. So Jesus, uh, I, I think, actually indicates that later on in Matthew's gospel as well. Uh, but that's something that you see elsewhere in the New Testament is it's not just Peter who is the foundation of the church. Jesus will be the chief cornerstone and all of the apostles will serve as uh, foundation, foundation stones. Peter may be first and foremost. Peter may be uh, the, the one who's the leader of the apostles, but he's not alone in this. The other apostles will also be foundational uh, to the church. And this is a really important point to make as well, because there's so much confusion about this in the church today on the Roman Catholic side, I would say also on the, you could say the charismatic or Pentecostal side, 
the apostles, strictly speaking, have no successors. Uh, Paul actually identifies himself as the last of the apostles in 1 Corinthians 15. So that fits with the metaphor. The apostles lay the foundation for the church, and then we build upon that foundation. And we're still building on that foundation today. Uh, so, but as point, a, so as a Protestant, uh, we're not apostate, is what you're saying. Exactly. If we're building according to Peter's confession and the teaching of all of the apostles taken together, then yes, we're, we're, we, are in, we are in line building according to their blueprint and building upon the foundation that, that was laid down. So I think that's really important to understand. Uh, so yes, the, the Peter does have a, a unique role to play in the sense that he is the leader of the apostolic band. No question about that. At least at this stage, he's the leader. But he's all—he's not uh, utterly unique in that the other apostles will also serve as foundation stones. You see that in the rest of of the New Testament as well. So uh, I think I think that's an important thing to pick up here. But the point being that so long as the church builds uh, uh, upon this apostolic foundation, the teaching of the apostles found in in the scriptures, uh, the church is going to be rock solid. Uh, the church is. <clears throat> is built on this sure foundation and the church cannot be toppled. Good. And so that, that leads us into the, the next term, which is the, the keys. What, what are the keys all about? Yeah. So this one is also very controversial, uh, really for some of the same reasons. Jesus here says he will give the keys of the kingdom to Peter. And then he says, whatever you bind on earth, we bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So what is this talking about? It seems that uh, the power to admit someone to the kingdom of God or to, uh, we could say, excommunicate or to exclude someone from the kingdom of God is given to Peter. And again, that's true, but it's not given to Peter exclusively because, again, if you keep reading in Matthew's gospel, if you come to uh, Matthew 18 and verse 18, uh, you're going to see the same kind of language of binding and loosing. Uh, but, but there, the keys of the kingdom belong not just to Peter, but actually to the whole congregation. Uh, to, to, the, to the whole uh, church, you could say. Uh, so again, Peter here receives something as a representative of a larger group. You could say the, the, the larger group of apostles, or even you could say on behalf of the church as a whole, but it's not going to be his exclusive possession. Uh, Jesus also uses language like this for all of 12 of the apostles at the end of John's gospel in John chapter 20. So again, Peter receives the keys here, but he won't be the only one to have the keys. All the apostles will, and indeed the power of the keys in some way belongs to the church. But then we have to ask the question, what is the power of the keys? And this is really important to understand. Whenever the church exercises the power of the keys, okay, which is to um, open the door of the kingdom to someone so they can come into the kingdom or to exclude someone from the kingdom, to close the door uh, on someone. The power that the church exercises in this way, it, the, the traditional uh, Protestant terminology for this would be to say that the church's power, the power of the keys, the church's power is ministerial and declarative. So it's ministerial and that it is a servant power. Uh, the church is administering a power that is not inherently her own, but has been entrusted to her. She's a steward of this power. And so she exercises this power on behalf of Christ, uh, but her power is not infallible. And so we say that power is declarative. The church makes 
declarations that do have real authority, but the church uh, the, the, the elders of the church or the pastors of the church or the presbyteries and councils of the church are never the absolute final authority. It's always Christ and his scripture who have the final say, who are the final authority. But we can say this, and this is really important for American evangelicals to understand because I think it's one of our great weaknesses. The church has real power and the church's governing bodies like her elders her presbyteries, and so forth, have real power. Now, that power uh, has to be exercised in accord with Scripture, or else it's being misused, it's being abused. But insofar as the judgments of the church align with the judgments of Scripture, those judgments can be considered binding. Uh, or loosing, as the case may be. Um, so, and and this is something that, uh, and this has been lost, I think, in many ways. But this is something that the the reformers clearly understood. It's actually really interesting to go and read, say, John Calvin uh, on uh, what he had to say about the church's power to bind and loose. And basically, he says that you know, if you if you go to a church that has a liturgy that includes a confession of sin and an absolution every week, you're going to get to experience this. This is what Calvin really believes Jesus is talking about here. That when the pastor, as Jesus' representative, declares to the confessing, repentant people of God, take heart, your sins are forgiven, that we ought to receive those words from the lips of the pastor as if Jesus was speaking to us straight from heaven. Uh, and, and so Calvin said you ought to derive great assurance from that. Uh, you actually ought to be assured by the words of your pastor declaring your forgiveness because he's been appointed by Jesus as his spokesman. And of course, the flip side of that is when the church uh, engages in excommunication, when um, someone can no longer be considered a professing Christian because they have fallen away from the faith. They've denied the faith by how they live or what they now profess to believe. And so they have to be excluded from the community of God's people. Same thing. Insofar as that judgment is faithful to scripture, we ought to consider that judgment of the church to be Christ's own judgment. That means excommunication is, is, a, is, a, is an incredible uh, power that the church has. And I think, again, one of the weaknesses of the church is that uh, most churches today don't really do church discipline, or at least they don't do church discipline faithfully. And so the church is missing out on uh, one of its most potent weapons, I think, to bring uh, order and uh, and holiness uh, into people's lives by um, by carrying out a process of church discipline, which actually in a couple a couple chapters later in Matthew 18, particularly in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, Jesus is going to outline what that um, what that process of church discipline looks like. And he's going to explain when it comes to the end of that passage. Uh, he says, if, if someone is confronted about their sin, a church member is confronted about their sin multiple times and, and by multiple witnesses, and they still refuse to repent, then they have to be put out of the church and treated as a heathen and a tax collector. Now, obviously, what do we do with heathens and tax collectors? We evangelize them and all that, but we don't consider them fellow Christians until they repent. And so he's saying, you're, you basically consider this person to not be a part of the church any longer. Um, they are bound in their sins until they repent, and then they can be welcomed back in. Uh, so there is a great deal of power entrusted to the church, and it's a power that I'm afraid a lot of the church today does not use, or when it does seek to use this power, it misuses it. Well, thank you, Rich, for talking us through those those two key points. You know, I, I you know I'm the type of person who wants to always r rush into the the gate 
per- parts of this because the gates is where all the, the really cool stuff is about the battle and the fights going on in the world today. But, but I, I want to go there, but I, I sometimes want to just jump right over the, the foundation, which is Jesus Christ and his church. And, and we, we can't win these battles uh, without the church of Jesus Christ. And, and, and we're not going to win our battles, battles personally unless our faith is based in that. So thank you for work, uh, walking us through all that. So we're going to take a break here and then uh, come back uh, next week and, and talk about the gates and uh, what that tells us from this passage and how we can apply it to the world today. So thanks very much, Rich, for being on this week's uh, Liberty Cafe. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Cafe with Bill Peacock. This show is produced by Texas Scorecard. You can learn more about this show and find other shows at texasscorecard.com. Be sure you subscribe and rate the show on whatever platform you listen on. See you next time.